this is the kind of movie you couldn't do now. TV and film stars, Brit TV and film stars, Brit TV and film comedy stars, all wrapped up in lots of different stories, seven different stories in fact, as a compendium with an overarching theme, different comedy writers showcasing their wares, all for a budget of 116 grand. Okay, it was 1971, but that's not bad at all. It's kind of been overlooked, this movie. I loved it as a kid. It's a bit naughty, you see. And I still love it as an adult, because this is The Magnificent Seven Deadly Sins. One of the extraordinary things about this movie for me is that it was directed by Graham Stark. Now, I've always seen Graham Stark as a perennial sideman, a good hang, which is what Ronnie Wood said he was when he joined Rolling Stones. His friends, he was friends with Peter Sellers and other people and got quite a lot of work without him ever being anything particularly special. But to see him at the helm of this movie and to actually keep that movie going, to, to keep the stuff funny. It's not directed with an awful lot of uh, auteur touches or even much finesse, but it's a great rollicking comedy movie. And I tip my cap to this gentleman who I thought wasn't worth a fat lot, to be honest, in the comedy world. So this is a 1971 movie which is based around The Seven Deadly Sins. And uh, it's a uh, it's a movie which was produced by, um, or distributed certainly, by Tygon. And it's got a wide variety of actors and um, TV and film comedy writers in there. And there are, there are no, cl- no there's no clunkers here. There isn't one of the seven where you think, oh, I really need to just get past this. All of these performances and stories are good and funny, but there are a couple which are just stunningly good. So let me talk about some of the ones here. We start with Avarice, which is written by Esmond and Larby, who, of course, are most famous, I suppose, for writing The Good Life, but also wrote other um, British comedy staples of the 70s and early 80s, like Get Some In. And it's a story of a chauffeur who is um, working for a uh, very penny-pinching businessman called Mr Elsinore. And uh, when they arrive at work, or his work that day, they see a 50 pence piece, which is on the edge of the curb. The chauffeur goes to get it, Mr. Elsinore says, that's mine, and it falls down the drain. And Mr. Elsinore says, I want that 50 pence piece. And if you don't get it, then there'll be there'll be uh, some issues for you. So the chauffeur says, I'm going to get that for you if I have to dig up half of London to get it. And he sets about doing so. Taking the... Uh, 
taking the passing help of a fisherman who's enjoying himself immensely, both in the role and in the story, played by Roy Hood. There's a policewoman involved, who is Joan Sims. Eventually, the chauffeur goes down to the sewer, the sewer itself, meets a sewerage technician, Bernard Breslau, who proceeds to eat his sandwiches down there whilst uh, covered in detritus. And the chauffeur is played by Bruce Forsyth, who always seems as though he is, or he was, always seems as though he was sort of superior to things, not really in things, playing things. Here it's a nice performance because he knows what he's doing. It's not as bad as um, Tripper's Day or Slinger's Day as he was in it after um, after um, Leonard Rossiter sadly passed. Remember that? Terrible series. Not as bad as that. But here, he's okay as the chauffeur. Anyone could do it really. And it's an okay piece of work. You know, it's a bit of a farce. Goes searching for the 50 pence piece. Finally gets it. Gets fired by Mr. Elsinore, who then falls uh, down one of the open sewers. And he puts the Bruce Forsyth's character, puts the sewer cap on, whatever you call those things, and walks away. It's quite a nice little opener, but it's not. It's nothing special, really. But it's followed by Envy, which is another simple idea and probably the least successful of these stories. It's got um, two pools winners, um, Stanley and Vera. And Vera um, is played by Carmel Cryan in a kind of um, performance she usually played, which is kind of like a common, trying to be posh, um, very pushy. And she's got the money, of course, and her put-upon husband, played by Harry Seacombe, in a kind of... Um, well, he's very good at that sort of... Very hangdog and yes, dear, and um, little man trying to trying to do well, that kind of thing. And he, he, she sets her heart on a house which is not for sale. The couple of Jeffrey Bailden and June Whitfield, who are actually the best thing in this. They seem to live an extraordinary life, and uh, for one, uh, at one point, uh, Harry Seacombe gets into the um, into the house, wants to make them an offer, and he walks into one of the rooms, and June Whitfield is in the bath. He then closes the door quickly and says, "I want to make you an offer, and I, I'll wait for you to come back to me, shall I?" At which point, Jeffrey Meldon walks out of the bedroom next to him, opens the door, says to his to his wife, "You really should lock this door. Anybody could come in." Then walks back, without acknowledging Harry Seacombe's character, Stanley goes into the bedroom that's it extraordinary but you have a, a um, you have a, a combination of um, Harry Seacombe dressed up in different ways so dressed up in a sort of business suit with a tash as someone who is um, one of the the, the local uh, neighbourhood team um, who says there's going to be an airport built nearby that's great says Jeffrey Belden so that's a failure he then dresses up as a some kind of um Captain Birdseye type figure uh, to bring them a um, a distress flare and a life jacket because if the embankment breaks your whole house will be underwater that doesn't work he then sadly dresses up when he blacks up as a kind of Afro-Caribbean gentleman and plays 
um, that kind of steel drum type music, very loud, and effects and accent. This was 1971, and it really doesn't hold up now. Uh, the great thing is Jeffrey Bielden says, that's fantastic, I love this music, and I can't wait to see you. So, it's not ideal. In the end, they mock up a headline in a newspaper, deliver it, and it says that a, uh, a motorway is going straight through the house. Of course, they sell, and on the day they're moving out, a digger arrives because actually, coincidentally, there is a motorway going through their house. It's not ideal, really. It's written by David Freeman. Uh, it's not. Um, it's not a great piece of work. He he wrote generally for the, the Benny Hill Show. Um, but he also wrote for Tony Hancock and Terry Scott, Spike Milligan, and so he did a lot of work. But it's not a great piece of work. You've also got here a quite interesting take on gluttony, because you've got Leslie Phillips, who's always good for that kind of, uh, I say, ding-dong, kind of um, sexual but never really, make, never really makes it with a woman type, type of situation. And he works for a company making a diet, a diet biscuit, Slimos, and he's the ad exec. And he, everyone thinks he's really um, married to the product, but actually, while people are out, he is sneaking food and becomes obsessed with it. So he's got a, a lamp, which he takes the insides of it out, and there's a piece of ham or a, or a, or a, a you know, a load of ham in there. There's, he, he's, got, he's got donuts in his filing cabinet and that sort of thing. And the owner of the company, Julie Edge, who of course was, you know, in several movies, including up Pompeii, as the kind of voluptuous woman, comes on to him and says, would you like to come to my uh, house and we can talk business there later on to my apartment and I'm going to make braised duck, which of course he's loving, but suddenly has some kind of gastric episode. Goes to see the firm's doctor who says, you've put on five pounds in a week and if you keep doing this, I will report you. So he says, you need now to go on two Slimo biscuits a week, which of course just drives him um, to want more food. And on the evening that he goes to see Julie Edge, she wants to make love. He wants to eat food. He tells her at the beginning, I can't have any of the food. And she says, let me take your mind off that. But he can't take his mind off it. And is caught eventually in the shower, trying to cool down the pressure cooker. Ha ha, this is the 70s and taking the duck out and eating it under the shower. Now, let me tell you, it's a bit odd to see this now again because of the kind of binge eating situation we've got. So that has to be a caveat. But the great thing about this is that it's about, it's food equals sex and sex equals food and appetites equal um, difficulty, really. And it works very nicely. It's, uh, it's written by, um, by Graham Chapman and Barry Cryer, which is great to see. Some lovely lines in there, some great performances, exactly what you would expect. You know, Leslie Phillips and Julie Edge do exactly what you would expect, and there is comfort in that, as there is in comfort eating. Ha-ha. So there are some issues with it, but it's not a bad, not a bad um, segment at all. There are other segments here, but I want just to talk about two of the of the best segments in the whole thing. The first of these is written by Graham Stark, actually, from a story 
by Marty Feldman, and it's the uh, sin of lust. And really, what this is, it's not what you'd expect from a British sex comedy, I suppose, because the main performance here is um, wonderfully poignant and very um, self-deprecating. And as you might expect, um, it's something very special in that way. And it's Ambrose Twomley, played by Harry H. Corbett, and in his hands, this works so well. There is quite a lot of unreconstructed 1970s comments about birds and, you know, finding a bird and getting a bird and all that kind of thing. But at no point do we ever think he wants to just go and have sex with somebody for a one-night stand. What he wants is a woman. He wants somebody to be a companion with him. Why can't he find somebody? What he does is he goes out trying to find women. And he goes to um, his... He goes on the on, on the Bakerloo line to the... Um, to the underground station and hangs around the ticket office because that's where women wait for their dates and one of them is bound to be stood up. And that happens to be the case. And what happens is that he, she goes to the, um, the, the phone cubicle, the call box, to ring her date and he goes in the next one, sees what the number is and he, while she's waiting there wondering whether to call, he rings it pretends to be somebody else he says who he is but he pretends to be ringing a different number and who is this and of course he can see uh, her she has a name badge on he says i remember there was a young girl who i remember when i was a child and uh, and she was called greta that's my name oh i wonder what happened to little greta spavin i'm greta spavin so as all that he says you know i'd i'd, I'd love to to meet you they're getting on they're talking and he she's quite enchanted by him on the phone and he says I really do I really love to meet you just to go for a drink or a coffee or something she says I don't know I've got this date and he says please please meet me tonight she says yes okay I'll meet you and he's looking at her through the through the the window of the cubicle looking at her looking at her and he says oh that's great I'd, I'd love to see you later and she says yeah I just got to get away just got to get free of this bloke he's been following me all night he's even standing now in the other cubicle horrible he looks terrible what a funny man what a, how ridiculous and of course it's it's him and he leaves he leaves the phone hanging and that's it it's a simple idea some lovely comedy moments with Harry H. Corber but at the centre of everything he did was a longing and a loss and a wish to be something that he could never be. And it's the wonderful quality of that actor. And it's an interesting idea, but he makes it something special. The other great um, sin in this film is something which is a very different take. And it's a take from Spike Milligan, who has taken Sloth and made it as... A silent movie, black and white, with people talking to camera and then boards showing us what they're saying. It's wonderful. So you've got things like Spike Milligan as a man who um, has his hands in his pockets the whole way through because, as he says, I can't let go of my walnuts. And there's a thing about walnuts all the way through this segment, through this episode. And he's wanting to go through a, um, a gate in the country, but won't because it won't open. So he has to wait for the farmer to come through. 
and then he, he um, so, but he can't take action to open it himself. There's also somebody drowning Peter Butterworth, calling for help, and the gentleman he's calling for help says, I'm, "I can't help you. I've got I've got ten minutes left on my chair, in my deck chair." There's, um, there's, uh, Ronnie uh, Ronnie Barker sitting in a bus queue on a seat, talking about um, he he buys a walnut, just the one, and then can't open it and says, "I can't wait for this walnut to open." He says, uh, "He says, could you?" I said, I, 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 I used to have a, I used to have a pair of walnuts when I lost mine at Al Alamein. And then later on, says to, says to the person in front of the window in the queue, could you put this walnut on the road for a car to run over it? I did have a, a pair of walnut crackers, but I lost them at Al Alamein. It's, it's really lovely stuff. And my favourite of these little segments is Marty Feldman walking across a field, finding a tree in his way and saying, I'll just wait for this tree to fall down. It's just great. And in the end, Spike Milligan finds a an apple tree and says, this apple would, and sees an apple on the tree and says, this apple would go very well with my walnuts. So I will wait for it to fall. Waits and waits and waits with increasingly long beards. And then the final shot is him um, in the grave with the cross under the wall, under the, the apple tree. The apple falls on the grave <laughs> a hand comes out, takes the apple, chomps into it, leaves the eaten apple on the grave. It's a lovely, lovely moment. And it just shows how differently Spike Milligan was thinking compared to other writers who are great, like Barry Cryer and Esmond and Larby. And, you know, there's Galton and Simpson here who um, who who do a, a, a piece which is a rehash of what they did in 1963 in their Golden and Simpson um, playhouse called Impasse. It's called Pride. It's two, It's a, a man who's an up, uh, a more upper-class person and a, a more lower-class person, as it's thought at the time, um, played by Ian Carmichael and Alfie Bass, unfortunately Alfie Bass, who come to together in their cars either way on a country lane and neither of them will back up. So, you know, we've got great writers here, but Spike Milligan did something completely different. Now, he was someone who was thinking in a different way. And you can have your Monty Pythons and all of that, and you can have a now for something completely different. But if you want something completely different, have a look at the Q series, because that is something completely different. He was the one who was pushing against things. And that's seen here. But it is a great movie. It's a great example of cosy British comedy. It's a great example of sex comedy that isn't really sex comedy so it's lovely to see in that way there's nothing that makes you think oh there's boobs and bumps here there's none of that not much anyway and it also makes you think well you know this was these were great writers who could write for the screen beautifully and we had great actors who could deliver that couldn't make this film now of course sitcoms are completely different and i think that in some ways is a little sad. We used to be able to make them. It was a little hot house of stuff that was done. You know, Galton and Simpsons, the Esmond and Larbys. They would do um, lots and lots of comedies, and they would keep doing comedies. We don't see this kind of thing now, and it's so lovely to see it. For any of those people who are interested in those kind of comedians and those kind of writers, this is actually a great example of their work. It's commercial. 
but it really stands up. Four out of five Ramble rating, and I'd advise you to look this out because the performances and the writers are what made British comedy in the 60s and 70s so bankable. Ta-ta!